Great to be with you. My name's Michael, and uh, I want to welcome you. If you're here at the, at the top of the service, we did um, baby dedications. I know some of you weren't here then, but um, we, uh, we were really, our hearts were going out for the Dodgers, you know, tonight. And um, I just want to thank you because obviously you love Jesus more than the Dodgers. And um, so I'd like to lead us in a prayer for our pagan brothers and sisters. We're normally here on Saturday night, um, but we'll be repenting uh, tomorrow. But I do want to lead us in prayer for the Dodgers because it looks like they may need it. I'm not sure. But uh, hey, seventh game, right? It's like they, they had two shots, so we'll see uh, how that goes. Um, you may not know this, so I grew up in San Diego. I was a Dodger fan uh, as well as a Padre fan. So back in the day, some of you had to read about this like in uh, you know, National Geographic or something. But uh, <laughs> back when like Ron Say and Davey Lopes and uh, Steve Garvey and all those guys, uh, and so uh, I do have a love for the Dodgers, and I hope they win. But uh, we've got more important things to do. So uh, we're, we're here to do that. So uh, inside your program is a message note sheet. It's green and white. If you're brand new, I want to welcome you. Um, and I just hope that you have a great time with us and that God meets you in a really powerful way. But we're going to be going to our time of teaching, and this will help you follow along. And so if you all are ready to go, I'm ready to jump in. You guys ready to go? Okay, let's pray. God, we're just excited to be here, and we're excited what you're doing in our church and our life, and, and, and this vision that you're giving us for a gospel that's so much bigger, so much brighter, so much bolder, um, so much richer, deeper, higher, uh, fuller, more compelling than we've often realized that, that we come to you, we become part of this epic story, this epic drama you're working out in human history. We each have an important part to play. And so we pray today as we, we look, uh, take another look at what it looks like to live a life worthy of the gospel, this epic story. We pray you'd meet us in a powerful way and that you'd be honored as a result. And we would have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to his church. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, our story starts today in London. And um, it, it really started as an experiment. Um, it's a story of two boys. And, uh, and they meet through a chance encounter. And their, their lives are completely different. I mean, one was raised, one of these boys was raised um, in a world of poverty, in a world of crime, um, in a world of physical abuse. Um, the other was raised in a world full of power and privilege and incredible future destiny. But uh, through a series of events, they, they meet one another, and as crazy as it sounds, they become friends. And, uh, and what's even crazier is they look exactly alike. They're like, they could be identical twins or maybe closer. And as they become friends and they begin to share their stories of their lives, each one becomes fascinated with the story of the other. And they began to say, wouldn't it be cool if we could like switch places just for a little while? Do you think we could pull it off so we could live the other's life just temporarily? And so they decide to go for it. And it's going to change both of their lives forever. Well, today, we are continuing the series. This is week number seven of our series called The Gospel. And for those of you who are brand new, a special welcome. Uh, we're really glad you're here. 
And this is a series that's based on a letter from one of the leaders of the early church. We call them Paul, the Apostle Paul. He's writing to a group of Jesus followers that he actually led to Jesus, at least many of them, about 10, 12 years before. And they're now like 850 miles away from him. He's writing a letter. And they're, they're in a city called Philippi, which is in um, kind of modern-day Greece. And so the reason we're calling this series The Gospel is because in this letter, more than any of the Apostle Paul's other 13 letters, he uses the word gospel more per page or more per paragraph or per word than any of his other writings. But what's interesting is that his primary focus in this letter is not so much uh, the content of the gospel, um, that as we've been learning, it's just so epic, so much bigger and, and brighter and bolder, higher, deeper, more compelling than we've often thought. But his, his goal is to help them understand the implications of the gospel. The way I've put it is what we're learning is that the gospel is, is more than a message to be believed. It's a life to be lived. And so today we're breaking into uh, the middle of chapter two. We, we started this last week. If you have your Bibles, you have your apps, I encourage you to open up, turn on. But like last week, we need, to start, um, we need to start back at the end of chapter one because uh, this, this week and next week, there's like three weeks that all build on the final paragraph of chapter one. And so there in your note sheet, it's a section called the gospel, uh, the model to follow. And we're gonna pick it up at 127. We'll read a couple verses. Um, and then we will uh, jump into chapter two, kind of review quickly where we were last week, and then jump into our new section into five today. So in 127, Paul says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of, of Christ. This is our topic sentence for the whole letter. Um, whatever happens to me. So where's Paul? He's in prison. He's in Rome. He's awaiting a trial date. He's not sure if he's going to be retained, released, or executed. And so he says, uh, of course, as their leader, they're very concerned. But he says, hey, whatever happens to me, don't let that stop you. Live a life that's worthy of the gospel. And live up to this epic drama that we've become a part of. And then whether I come and see you, um, like I'm released from prison, or I only hear about you in my absence, I just continue to get messengers, um, I will know that you're standing firm in one spirit, striving together, as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. And so what we've learned is that while Paul's in prison, he's received a visit from 850 miles away from a man named Epaphrodites, this really cool leader in the church of Philippi, who's come to bring him a significant financial gift to help support him in prison and advance the gospel. And through Epaphrodites, he's learned what's going on at the church back at Philippi. And what he's learned, a couple big things that come right out at the start, as we see in this passage, that one concern is that there's clouds on the horizon. This church has always been an amazing church, loved one another, loved Paul, stood for the gospel. There are kind of seeds of discontent. There's seeds of disunity that are rising, as we saw last week, very likely around these two leaders that's spilling out over into the congregation now. Uh, and that on top of that, they're facing significant persecution. And so his concern is, number one, that they would get their act together and be unified, and number two, they'd have courage so they could stand as one person to advance the gospel in Philippi. Right? So, so that's the context of this whole section. What does it look like to live a life worthy of the gospel, standing together unified uh, and courageously to share the message of the king? And so then we move into chapter two, right? And so we did this last week. 
And so just real quickly, what Paul's gonna say is that, so if you've experienced this amazing community of King Jesus, you've come to him, you've experienced the love, the encouragement, the fellowship, the sharing of the new community of Jesus, then make my joy complete by pushing forward and continuing to take it to the next level. And so he says, therefore, verse chapter two, verse one, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ in this new community, any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the spirit, any tenderness and compassion, make my joy complete by being like-minded. So in the Greek, that's a word that means to think the same way. It's, it's, it actually says, it literally says to think and then the same way. That'll become important later. But he says to be like-minded, uh, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. So how do you create a, unit, a united fellowship? How do you build this uh, amazing community of King Jesus? Well, he's gonna give us, like we saw last week, the negative and the positive. The first is we have to reject narcissism like living for ourself. So in verse three, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now he gives us the positive, we're gonna embrace humility. Rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking only to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So that's the passage where we've been. We're gonna live a life worthy of the gospel. We need to stand united, be courageous, advance the gospel. But to do that, you have to create this united community. So if you've experienced this new amazing fellowship of King Jesus, you've experienced this love, be of one mind, reject narcissism, embrace humility, seek each other's uh, best and create the community. So he's kind of made his pitch. But now what he wants to do is support that by reminding them of what the gospel is all about and reminding them of who we follow, King Jesus. And so he's gonna give this example of how Jesus models a life of rejecting narcissism. Jesus models a life of embracing humility, living his life for others, a life of service. And so in verse five, he says, uh, in your relationships with one another, have the same, what's the next word? the same mindset. Now in the Greek, it's the same word that I pointed out back in verse two, where he said to think the same thing. Uh, he doesn't say think the same thing, but he says something like think like Jesus. In other words, in your relationships, approach your relationships in the new community as Jesus has approached you. Embrace his mindset of relationship. And now he's gonna go on and he's gonna define the mindset of King Jesus. But what I wanna do before we look at this passage I want you to take a look at the format of this passage. If you look at your Bibles, uh, you look at your apps, I want you to notice, we're gonna go from verse six down to verse 11, and I want you to notice how those look more like poetry than prose. Do you see what I mean? It's indented, uh, he's been doing just paragraphs to all of a sudden. The reason for this is that most scholars believe that what we're looking at in these verses is one of the earliest, very ancient hymn or creed of the early church. So some of you grew up with creeds and churches that have creeds like the Apostles' Creed, right? You recite the Apostles' Creed, the basic teaching of the faith. And so um, that most scholars believe that what we're reading here is a creed or a hymn, it could have been sung, it could have been recited, uh, that was uh, before the book of Philippians was written, before this letter was written, that he is reciting a common creed, a hymn. Now, some scholars believe Paul wrote this hymn um, and that he's just inserting it in. He wrote it at an earlier time. There are a few that believe that he wrote it actually the first time in this letter. Um, probably the, that, the majority of scholars believe that someone else wrote this 
and that he's quoting them, much like a pastor today would quote something when he's trying to make a point, um, because the language and the, the words and the vocabulary are kind of unusual. They don't sound like Paul's normal language, right? Like if I got up here and started giving illustrations from Marvel Magazine, you would know, that's not you, you're quoting Dre, right? You would know that. Um, if, I got, if I got up here and started talking about chocolate chip cookies and oatmeal chocolate chip cookies, like you would know that has a long history. Like that, that's not a new thought, that is something that's part of the core, the heart of Rocky Peak, right, that I'm just quoting back. And so in the same way, when you're reading it in Greek, this, this hymn, this creed uses words that are unusual words, phrasings that are unusual. They don't really sound like Paul so much. So as, so as most scholars believe that Paul is quoting something else. This may have been a hymn or a creed that they actually recited in their church or that they, they sung, they'd be familiar. But the point, what I want you to catch, the point of why he's quoting it, whether he wrote it or whether he's quoting it, he's authorizing it. And the, the point is, is he says, this what, this, this hymn that we sing, this creed that we recite, this reveals the mindset of Jesus. Amen. This hymn, this creed, reveals the heart of God. And as we come into this creed right now, we are entering in, men and women, to the holy of holies. I am not, I'm not kidding. I, I'll talk about this more later, but as I've spent time in this, and I first started working on this message, uh, as I've spent time in this, God has just really used this. It's like there's, there's times where I just feel like an awe, like I am looking into the heart of God. Like this is incredible. This is early stuff, early Christianity, right? Perhaps even long before Paul wrote this letter, this was floating around in the early church to express this is who we are. We don't know that for sure, but it's very likely. And so it's incredible. And so what Paul is going to do is to say, let's, let's think about how Jesus does relationships. Let's look at his mindset because he is our model to follow. And so with that in mind, let's read it. And uh, it breaks into two halves. Verse six through eight is the first half. Verse nine through 11 is the second half. The first half reflects on who God is and who Jesus is and what he did. The second half on how the father responded to what Jesus did. And so... He says in verse five, so in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then he begins perhaps to quote, he says, who being in the very nature God. Now in the Greek, it literally says in the very form of God, that'll become important in a second, who being in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Now if you have a different translation, Different translations will render this second line differently, and the reason it's hard to, to determine in the Greek exactly what he's saying, but I love the way the NIV put it. I think the point is, is that though he was God, he didn't act like you'd expect God to expect, to act. That when in our world, when there's a person of power, like who voluntarily gives up power? Who voluntarily gives up rights? But he doesn't expect that instead of using his power for himself, he voluntarily gives it away to, for the, the advantage of others. And so he says, that who being in the very form of God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself what? Nothing. nothing. Now, you know what that nothing means? One of us. Yeah. 
It means a human being. Uh, in the Greek, it literally says, in the Greek, it literally says he emptied himself. Think of it like a pitcher of water that you pour out. So he emptied himself. They translate it, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature. In the Greek, it's the word form. So he was in the form of God. Now he takes the form of a servant, except in the Greek, it's not servant, it's slave, right? So he goes from, from, t from taking the robes of royalty to the rags of a servant. And then being made, uh, and, he says, and he explains what he means by emptying himself. He says being made in human likeness. So he gives up this freedom of being God, all the, all the privileges, the power, and he becomes one of us, you know? I mean, he's born as a baby, right? He's got to have his diapers changed. Right? He, he's got to do all the things we do, the limits of being human. And it says, and then being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself even more by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, we need to talk about a cross a little bit. I know that some of you are very familiar with this, some of us are not. One of the problems I have with crosses today, like I'm big on crosses, I love the cross, we sing about the cross, but often today, the cross has become a religious symbol that's lost all connection with what it meant in the first century. Did you know in the first century in Roman society it was considered impolite to ever talk about a crucifixion? It was so horrid. It was so uh, heinous. It was like you don't you're a dinner you do not bring up a crucifixion. Has saw crucifixion. You don't bring that up. A crucifixion was a method of torture and execution that was devised by the Romans to serve as a deterrent to keep the empire in check. It was, it, was a, it was a form of torture designed to keep conquered nations conquered. And so when you'd crucify people, it was always very public. The crucifixions took place by major roads. At one time about, let me think, maybe 80, 90 years before Jesus, there was a major slave rebellion led by Spartacus. Now, I know you've heard that because you've seen that. <laughs> like we're back on solid ground, TV. <laughs> All right. Uh, when that rebellion, which was a very effective rebellion, by the way, and was scared Rome to death, when it was finally put down, Spartacus was a very uh, effective general, when it was finally put down, they crucified 6,000 Roman slaves on the Via Appia to Rome. So I came here, every 30 yards, there was a cross. It's the main thoroughfare. It'd be like putting on an I-5. What's the point? The point is, don't mess with Rome. This is what happens if you mess with Rome. So crucifixion was illegal for a Roman citizen. This is why the Apostle Paul, when he eventually is executed later on, he will be beheaded, not crucified, because he was a Roman citizen. The Apostle Peter was crucified because he was not. Um, 
To be crucified um, was reserved for the lowest uh, slaves and it's any kind of treason rebellion against Rome. If you're a Roman, if you're a Roman citizen, you can't be crucified. So for, for, um, for the ancient world, remember Paul's writing to a Roman colony of Philippi. Crucifixion is considered the most painful, most humiliating. You'd be stripped naked. You'd be hung on the cross. It would often take days to die. After you would die, they would not take you down. They would let the birds and the rats eat your bones. It was considered so horrendous. This is why you wouldn't even talk about it in polite Roman society. And so it's important for us to get that image because when we hear crucify, we're so, comp we're so familiar with the cross, it doesn't really conjure up any emotional reaction. But this is crazy that God was crucified. The creator was crucified. And so Paul goes on and he says, therefore, so now we're moving into how the father responded to what Jesus did. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. Like he went from to the lowest place. Therefore, who should be the top leader of the universe? The person with the greatest humility. And who had the greatest humility but the one who is in the form of God who became a slave. That's why Jesus is honored because he is the greatest. And he gave him a name. And of course, name speaks of your identity, your uh, position. Uh, he gave him the name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. That it was decreed that there will come a day when every knee, every single person will bow. And he says, it's in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So all creation, human beings, angelic beings, demonic beings, all creation will bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. Lord. Remember, in the Roman Empire, there was only one ultimate Lord. Caesar is Lord. When you start saying that there is another Lord, that is treasonous. And it very likely is why the Christians in Philippi were being persecuted. And he said that this will, this will result in bringing glory to God the Father. Now there's more here than meets the eye because when Paul says in the last two verses that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, he's actually quoting Isaiah 45. And this is where it gets really woo. Like, wow. Because there's this amazing passage in Isaiah 45 where, you know, the big thing in, in the Isaiah 40 to 66 is there's all these other gods, right? All the nations are claiming other gods. And, and one of the things that God keeps saying is there is no other God. I'm the only God. In Isaiah 45, God proclaims that one day the whole world, Yahweh proclaims, that one day that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. What's crazy is that Paul now quotes that as being fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. 
and that he is given the name above every name, Yahweh. And so there in your note sheet, I put this in verse in Isaiah 45. This is a, a couple quotes from that passage where he's quoting. First of all, God is speaking. He says, I am the Lord. Right? Lord, all caps, means Yahweh. So uh, it says, I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked, it will never be changed, that there will come a time where before me every knee will bow and by me every tongue will swear. And now the apostle Paul says, Jesus now has that name. The Jesus of Nazareth, and you know in theology we describe it this way, that God took on human nature. That, 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 God, that Jesus added to his divine nature his human nature. He's become the God-man. And this is it. We were created to rule over creation, were we not? In Genesis 1, we were created as a race to rule. Now we, we have not been able to accomplish that goal because of our rebellion. And so one has come from the line of David who has now fulfilled that. The human being, Jesus will always be a man. That Jesus now as the God-man has been put to the top position ruling over all creation. And he has rescued our calling as a race. And now you and I will rule with him. The story, the epic story, created to rule, has been resolved in King Jesus. We don't see all creation under our rule yet, but we do see Jesus, Hebrews says, who has gone before us. And so it's amazing drama. But remember why Paul is quoting this hymn or writing this hymn? Because he says that if you're going to create the king, if you're going to live a life worthy of the gospel, if you're going to build the community of Jesus, you have to think like Jesus. Let's see how Jesus thinks. Right? Now, so from this passage then, we have two, I want to highlight two principles and then come back and ask us one question. And so the first principle, there in your notes, it's a section called the gospel, follow the leader. The, the first principle is rather obvious in one way and yet not in another. So just uh, hang with me here as we explore this. But the basic principle is simple, that Paul is saying that Jesus is our model. Is that followers of Jesus, Jesus is our model. This is his point in 2.5, and I want you to catch it. In your relationships with one another, have the same what? Mindset. Uh, think like Jesus. Approach your relationships as Jesus approaches his relationships, all right? So Jesus is our model. Now, at one level, I think we understand that, but here's what I want to challenge you, that often when we think of the gospel, we don't think of the gospel having to do with becoming like Jesus. We think of the gospel as we're so unlike Jesus that this is why Jesus came and died for us so that we can be forgiven, right? So when we think of the gospel, we think of Jesus dying for us. 
And that, of course, is completely true. It's core to the gospel. But what we often miss is that the other half of the gospel is that Jesus came and died for us so that we can live for him. So that we can be transformed to become like Jesus and live the life we were designed to live. That too is the gospel. The gospel is not that we come to Jesus and are forgiven and stay messed up for the rest of our lives. That's not the good news. The good news is not you're really screwed up, but Jesus died for you, so you'll get in. But too bad, you're going to be really screwed up for a long time. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus died for you so that you can live for him. That is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That that Jesus died for you, Paul's put it this way, that Jesus died for us that we may no longer live for ourselves but for him who died for us. That he died for us so that we can die to our old life so we can rise with him to be the people we were created to be and we can learn to follow him and become like him as our model. That is the full gospel. Now here's the thing. If you read your Bible with the gospel glasses on, you will see this. But so many times, because we've had a truncated view of what the gospel is, we miss the obvious. But the Bible says this over and over again. One of my favorite examples is in Luke chapter 6. And this is a verse that we talk about here at Rocky Peak a couple times a year, I would say at least, because it's just so critical. But I want to go over it again. It's in Luke, Luke chapter 6. It's, and Jesus makes a statement that in his day would have been, duh. Right? So we don't look at it that way. But in Luke chapter 6, here's the statement. He says, a student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be what? like their teacher. Now, in Jesus' day, that would have been like stating the obvious. In first century Judaism, the whole point of following a leader, a rabbi, was to become like the rabbi. They didn't think like we do, uh, kind of a more of a Greek mindset, that you could buy into someone's theology or buy into their philosophy without buying into their lifestyle. They wouldn't think like that. So this is why in the New Testament you see John the Baptist had disciples. The Pharisees had disciples. And when you're a disciple of the Pharisee, you're not just buying into their theology, you're learning to live like a Pharisee. When you follow John the Baptist, you're learning to live. So in this verse, And it says, a student is not above his teacher. That word for student is the word for disciple. It's the Greek word, mathetes. It's the normal word for disciple. Like you see it hundreds of times. The disciples did this, the disciples did that, the early church disciples did this. It's just the name of a Christ follower. Um, It's the most common name. Um, This is the only place in all the New Testament where the NIV translates it as student. And so Jesus is just saying something that in his day would have been obvious, but he's applying it to himself. He says, a student is not above his teacher. 
In other words, the disciple is not smarter, faster, better, more godly than the teacher. If so, why would you be following the teacher? Like the reason you're following is because they're ahead of you on the path. He says, but everyone who is fully trained, and the Greek means to heal or restore, will be like their teacher. So what's Jesus saying? He's helping us understand that the whole purpose of following Jesus is to become like Jesus. So what I want you to catch is the gospel is much more than I believe in Jesus who died for me so that I can be forgiven. Yes, it is that. But it is also I believe in Jesus who died for me so I can die with him, so I can rise with him and be transformed by the power of his spirit to become like him, okay? So the first thing Paul wants us to understand is that you know, Jesus is our model, but the second point, and we'll spend a little longer here, is that Jesus models relationships. This is Paul's point. Look at chapter two and verse five. It says, in your relationships with one another, have the same what? Mindset. Approach them. Think like Jesus. In your what? In your relationships. In your relationships, think like Jesus. So Jesus models all kinds of things for us, doesn't he? But here, Paul is talking about relationships. In the community of Jesus, if we're going to live a life worthy of the gospel, if we're going to be one, stand as one to advance the gospel, if we're going to encourage one another, if we're going to create this community of love and serve, that if that happens, we have to think like Jesus. So his point is, in your relationships, model your relationships the way Jesus does relationships, okay? So in this passage, Jesus models lots of things, but in this passage, Paul's saying, Pay attention to the way he does relationships. And this is why he's quoting this hymn. He's not quoting this hymn so they know more about Jesus. Chances are they already know this about Jesus. If it's a hymn, if it's a creed, if scholars are right, it's very likely that this is one that they've quoted before, they've heard before, they've read before. This is not just like, hey, let's talk about Jesus and let's talk about how he was God and he became man. Let me do this little theology with you here. That's not what this is about. The whole point of quoting this creed or this hymn is to say, hey, let's model Jesus in the way he does relationships. So let's look at how does he do relationships. And I gotta tell you that when I was, uh, when I was pre- first preparing for this message, that you, know, you spend a lot of time. You spend a lot of time. You know, you, you're reading commentaries. You're reading it. I'm reading it in the Greek. I'm taking it apart. Just spending a lot of time with it. And the more I spent time with it, the more it's just like I felt like the Holy Spirit was just like opening this passage in small ways. It's I felt like a little kid. Like I'm trying to see something, and I'm like this. And I feel like I can barely see it. But what I'm seeing is very compelling. It's like I feel like 
I'm looking into the very heart of the gospel. Like in this hymn, it's striking me, this is one of the most profound things said in the whole word of God. It's like in this hymn, something is happening that is incredibly profound. That if we could just understand this, it would radically change the whole approach to life. And I felt like I was just barely seeing it. I still feel like that. I feel like I'm not sure it's even possible for us to really see this that clearly. It's a little bit like imagining that I would become an ant to rescue the ants, except a hundred billion times more. Like, it's like, okay, like, okay, imagine this, you know? Think back to Honey, I Shrank the Kids, you know? <laughs> I'm like, I'm imagining that I, as a human being, uh, me, Michael Yearly, with all the learning and the life and the thing, and I'm going to become an ant. Uh, and it's like, I can't really get there. I can't really get there. I can't, it's like, that's crazy. And yet the difference between me and an ant is like, what, a billionth or a trillionth of God becoming one of us? Like, I can't even begin to get there, but I can begin to feel how far from getting there I am. And as I was thinking about this, and how do you communicate, how do you communicate something in a powerful way to a church where you're on your tiptoes and you can barely see something a thousand yards away. And as I was thinking about that, a story came to mind. And it's a story that I never read. Um, it's a story that likely some of you have. Probably most of you have heard of it. And so I decided to download the audiobook for the story. And over the next four to six weeks, Lynn and I listened to this as we were driving along on a trip or whatever. And it's kind of a famous story. It's a story we started the day with. It's a story that was the first novel that Mark Twain ever wrote. And it was called The Prince and the Pauper. And so I'd heard about that and I knew, because I was super bright, <laughs> that it had to do with a prince and a pauper. Um, but that's about it. I knew that there was some kind of switch. So I brought it up on Wikipedia, and I thought, if I'm going to teach this, I want to listen to the whole thing. And so, on the next few weeks, we listened to that. And it's kind of a crazy story. And if you're on the premise, the story takes place in England, in London, in the 1500s. So London in the 1500s was a very dangerous place, especially if you're poor, and most people were. And so um, did you notice that in the 1500s, there was over 200 crimes for minor crimes like stealing food, 200 crimes that resulted in capital punishment, either being hung or burned, or in lesser cases, they disfigure you, for example, cutting off your ears. 
It was brutal. And so in this era of London, there are these two lads, these two boys. They're young. I think they're about nine. I can't remember exactly, but they're two lads. And they meet. And the one boy is brought up in poverty and squalor. He's got an alcoholic father who forces him to steal and then beats him if he doesn't bring enough money. And so his name is Tom. And then there's a second boy who grows up in the palace. He's the Prince of Wales, the heir to the throne. His name is Edward. And through a series of events that I don't have time to go into, these two boys actually meet and they become friends. And what's crazy is they look exactly alike. It turns out they're born on the exact same day, the exact same age. And they look like more than identical twins. And so as they begin to share about the saga of their life, they each start getting fascinated. And it's obviously Tom, the poor boy, is fascinated by life in the palace. I mean, he's used to cold and hunger and starvation and beating. He's interested in the palace. But the other boy, uh, Edward, is actually very interested too because his life, though, so high, it's so regulated. His life, he's got to always be learning, studying all the court manners. He can't just go out and explore. And he's fascinated by having the freedom to go out and play the mud pies with your friends. And so they come up with a scheme. What if we switch clothes just temporarily? But after they switch, they get separated. And now they can't convince anyone of their true identity. And so, for the young, they both have big challenges ahead of them. But for the young prince, his life suddenly becomes very dangerous. And for the first time in his life, he knows hunger, he knows cold, he knows abuse. The abuse is so bad he runs away. One thing that makes it worse is wherever he goes, with all the authority and command and panache of a prince, he's telling people what to do. Because he's the prince. And he's telling them he's the prince. And this just irritates the heck out of everyone because you're like nothing. So he's incognito. And so as a result, Partway through, his father actually dies, and so he's now the king, or heir to the throne. And now he's saying he's a king. And pretty soon he's falling in with bandits, and they're mocking him and beating him for his claim to be the king. And he gets to know what life is like, and he's imprisoned, and he's almost killed multiple times. You know, and as a reader, you're just so frustrated. You're like, no, he is the king. Will you just believe him? Like, he really is the king. Like, no, no, hey, come on, just tell him this or do that or can, can you just show him that you're the king? And of course, as readers or listeners, you know, Lynn and I have to suspend belief a lot because you're just like, this could never really happen. Like, how could this ever really happen? That you'd have this mistake and there would be a prince who becomes the king who's not recognized, who's beaten, who's mocked, who's dressed in robes and put a crown on his head, mock worship, and then almost killed. And like, that could never happen. You know, as crazy as that story is, that's what this hymn's telling us. That on a much grander, more epic scale, 
that there was a time and there was a place when the creator of the entire cosmos entered into his creation, became a part of time and space, became one of us, a member of the human race, and was tortured and executed in 30 AD on a Roman cross because he claimed to be king and no one believed him in order to rescue the race that crucified him. Paul says, excuse me, let me remind you of the gospel. Let me remind you of the mindset of our king. And maybe this will inform the way you're approaching your relationships there in Philippi. So it leads to a question. The model to follow, the key question, and this question is two parts, as you see. We'll talk about each of them. The first, the, the question, the first part goes like this, are you modeling, are you modeling? And the second part is the mindset of Jesus. And so let's talk about both parts. The, the first part, are you modeling? Here's the question I have for you. Are you modeling Jesus in your life? When you look at what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus, what does it mean to be a Christ follower, when you look at what it means to believe the gospel, what does it mean to you to believe the gospel? Yes, it means that we believe that Jesus died for our sins on a Roman cross so we could be free. Yes. But to believe the gospel means that the one who died for our sins has now been raised up and crowned king of all creation with a name above every other name to which one day every knee will bow, the Caesars of this world, the believers of the world, the non-believers, that there will come a day when everyone will acknowledge that Jesus of Nazareth has a name Yahweh above every other, and that's what it means to believe the gospel. And so what that means is if Jesus is your king, he's your model, and to believe the gospel means we model our life off of Jesus. To believe the gospel doesn't just mean I went forward at a Billy Graham crusade, I went forward at a horizon event, I went forward at a harvest festival, I signed my name at Rocky Peak on the back of a connect card, I went forward at a meeting and therefore I believe the gospel. That is a great start. But that's only half the gospel. To say I believe the gospel means I believe there was a time and there was a place when the 
the one who created all time and space, broke into human history and became part of our race to rescue me on the cross and to rescue all creation, and that that one is now ruling over creation, and there will come a time when he will restore all things, and every knee will bow, and I bow to him now in advance as my king and my Lord of my life. And therefore, I live my life by modeling my life off of my king's life. Do you see how that's different than just believing something about Jesus? And for many of us, we look at the gospel as believing a certain thing about Jesus. He died for me. What we've often missed is, no, it's to believe in Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus, you follow Jesus as your model. So we need both sides of that equation. But this goes on, are you modeling the mindset of Jesus? And so you're modeling Jesus, but in particular his mindset, and what mindset? Well today the focus is on his mindset, the way we do relationships. Paul says, there at Philippi, as you live a life that's worthy of the gospel, it means to build this amazing community of the king. You need to embrace the mindset of Jesus. So what does that look like? Well, it looks like rejecting narcissism. It looks like embracing humility. It means to learn to live for others. It means at times to sacrificially live for others, to lay down your rights, to suffer for others, for the sake of the community, the unity, that's what it looks like, like King Jesus. It means to be transformed, to be like Jesus. And so the question is, is that in your relationships, really all of your relationships, but let's focus especially on the community with other believers. Are you modeling the way you do relationships the way Jesus does relationships? And I mentioned this last week, that often as followers of Jesus, one of the last areas of our life that changes is the way we do relationships. It's amazing how we can believe the gospel and yet the way we treat our spouse. We treat our spouse the way your mother taught your da- uh, treated your dad or the way your dad treated your mother. You don't treat your spouse like Jesus treats your spouse. You treat them like you were raised. You don't, treat, uh, you don't treat enemies like Jesus treats enemies. You treat enemies like our politicians treat enemies. Our parties treat enemies. Right? We, we don't respond to hurt the way Jesus responds to hurt. We respond to hurt like we were raised to respond to hurt. Are, are you in here? That this... That what happens is we believe the gospel at some level, but we've missed what the gospel is. The gospel is Jesus. And so this is why I'm very excited because, you know, this often happens how the Lord just lines things up for Rocky Peak. And he did this last fall, preparing us for Rooted in the series we were in. And I believe he's lining us up. We're learning a lot here. But as we go into the new year, 
we're gonna be doing a series on loving others as Jesus loved us. And what does it look like to do our relationships a whole new way, a gospel way? Uh, we're gonna delve into this much more. We're gonna spend 10 weeks as a whole church going through this, our life group, and we're gonna go through this together. If our, if our vision here is to unleash a movement of passionate Christ followers, we pursue God. We did that last year, right, in our study, but now we're gonna love others. What does it look like to do gospel relationships to model off of, and I'm very excited about this. But for today, let me just ask you a few questions to get your mind thinking about this. Are you modeling the mindset of Jesus in the way you're doing your relationships, especially in your family and the body of Christ? I just wanna ask you a few questions. Like, do you find that as you follow Jesus, are you becoming less self-absorbed and more others-absorbed? Is it less about you, more about others? A second question would be, are you becoming less concerned with your reputation as time goes on? In other words, are you less concerned when you're like on a ministry team or in your family, are you less concerned with who gets the credit and you're more concerned with whether the gospel's advancing? Do you remember back in chapter one where Paul said, hey, I'm in prison, there's some people that are preaching out of bad motives. They're just trying to cause trouble for me. But he said, but I, it's okay, as long as the gospel's preaching, I'm okay with that. Like he didn't care about his own reputation, he cared about the advance of the gospel. When you're in a ministry team, when you're serving, is what's driving you the feedback, the ego strokes, or it's like, you know what, I don't need the credit, I just need the gospel to advance. Remember what Paul said about vain conceit. Um, here's another question. Do you find that you're growing, your heart is growing in service to others? Do you find that you're living out increasingly a lifestyle of service, not what can I get, but what can I give in the relationships I'm in? Here's another one on the service question. This is a great question. How do you respond when you're treated like a servant? You know, it's one thing to serve when it's at our time, our place, our convenience, our choice, and we get a lot of strokes for it. That's great, you know? But often a window into our heart is how do you respond, not when you're serving, but when you're treated like a servant. When someone takes your service for granted. There was a great story that I heard a while back and it was one of our life groups there out serving at a, a, a kind of a parachurch type organization. And some of the guys were building a project and the director came in which is so rude like ordering them around like slaves not appreciative of all they're doing this for free thing and it was so great because one of the one of the leaders of the group went back and said hey are you guys doing okay and they said we're not here because of him we're here to hear serve Jesus Amen. Amen. so it doesn't really matter it's not that big a deal here's another question are you becoming less critical and more accepting? A similar question, 
are you becoming less argumentative and grumbling less and complaining about others less? The reason I ask this question is because next week we'll see Paul calls this one out specifically. He says that there in Philippi, you know, that there was selfish ambition and vain conceit. That's, those are in, inner things, right? Those are like internal motives, ambition, selfish ambition, vain conceit. How is that being manifested? If you were there, what would it look like? Next week we're gonna learn, it looks like grumbling against others and it looks like complaining. Why, because if you're the center of the universe and you're not getting your way, So here's what I want to mention. Are you modeling, growing in the mindset of Jesus in your relationships? And what Paul says is if we want to live a life worthy of the gospel, if we want to build a community of King Jesus, then we have to follow the example of King Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, used for his own advantage, but emptied himself, made himself as nothing, became a slave. And once a slave, he went to the, a slave's death under false charges to rescue the very race that was crucifying him. Paul says, Think about that the next time. You're thinking about how you respond to your hurt feelings or your selfish ambition or your offense. Do you think you might be able to absorb that like he absorbed this for you? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. It's so beautiful. It's so powerful. Lord, it's so spirit filled. Think of your word says that your word is spirit in their life. And we're just thankful because it breathes life into us, God. It tells us who we are. It casts our eyes up. It rescues us from smallness and, and, and calls us to, to cast our eyes up on the bigger vision and, and who you're calling us to be in this new life and what it looks like and how we move into the future and the freedom that you have for us is new creations. And so we thank you for that. And as we worship you now, Lord, as we celebrate your life, your death, your resurrection that has raised us, we pray, Lord, that you would teach us how to model our lives off of you and to model our mindset and the way we do relationships off of you that we might create the beautiful community of King Jesus, a community of love and service and humility that cares not so much for our own best but the best of others. And as we each take care of one another, that we're all taking care of in this beautiful new community. We pray you use these gifts, these tithes, these offerings to create that place. We pray in your name, amen. Would you stand with me? And that's the message that he who is in the very nature of God did not consider that place to be used for his own advantage, but he made himself nothing and being found as a human being. He went even lower still to become a slave. And died in a Roman cross in 30 AD to rescue a race that had rebelled. 
I don't think we can begin to really understand what that would be like. But at least we can begin to stand on our tiptoes and say, that's our king. And that is amazing. And though I can't really even begin to comprehend that, I can begin to get a glimpse. And that's our king, that I understand what it means to live out the gospel. Amen? Amen. That I, I need to... I need to lay aside my selfish ambition. I need to, to give up my need for praise and ego and glory. And I need to embrace a life of humility that, as Jesus said, leads to true freedom and fulfillment. And I need to begin to seek the best of those around me and, and lay down and, and die to myself that I might rise with him to live the victory. Amen? May this be a fantastic week as you learn to listen and follow, to die to the old life, to rise with Christ to the power of the new, and live out the gospel. As you leave today, if you have a need for prayer, um, to my right and your left, we have a prayer team that would love to pray with you. And until then, uh, until next week, I'll see you uh, when I, until then, but may the Lord just be with you. May he shelter you. May he shepherd you. May he call you higher. May he give you eyes to see more and more with all of us together that we would see what it is to live out the gospel. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless. I'll see you next week.